his trial before Pilate. There we read, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus goes on to quote Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And let's now also sing that same psalm, Psalm 22, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
We'll now go to our, our text, which is Mark 15, the verses 33 to 41. There we read, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, brothers and sisters, Every good story has a high point, a a climax, where conflict is either resolved or ends in failure. And like every good story, Mark's gospel account also has a climax. There's a buildup of action and events. And so the story of our own redemption, this gospel account inspired by God, has a high point. And that high point is the death of Christ, the long-awaited Lamb of God who came to redeem lost sinners. And so this is a, a high point for us, but it's also a low point for Christ, at least in his earthly suffering. As we confess in Lord's Day 16, it was necessary for Christ to humble himself unto death, because satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than through the death of the Son of God. So this marks the most intense point of Christ's suffering on earth, and it's the only way that we could be brought and made at peace with God. And so today we'll look at this passage, the crucifixion and and death of Christ under this title, Jesus Dies Our Death. And I have three points, the the low point of Christ's suffering, the low point of the crowd's reaction, and the high point of the centurion's confession. So Jesus has been sentenced to death by, by Pontius Pilate. He's been sentenced to death by crucifixion. And as he leaves the city of Jerusalem, he begins to weaken under carrying his cross and weaken from the beating that he's previously received. And so the Romans, they forced this man, Simon of Cyrene, a place in North Africa, to 
carry the cross for him. And this Roman flogging, it was a cruel punishment. It was so cruel that often the the victim would die from the beating that they received. Under Jewish custom, you could only be struck 39 times, but the Romans didn't have a law like that. They would beat you until they were satisfied. And this whip that they used had an end or a few different ends on it, like a cat of nine tails. And there would be pieces of lead and bone inserted into the leather. And after this beating, the Romans would force the person to carry the the cross beam of the cross on their shoulders. But Jesus was too weak from the beating that he received to actually carry it. And then they, they come to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and they nail Jesus to this cross. Now Mark, he glosses over the actual act of crucifixion. His first readers knew what it meant and what the process was in being crucified. For us, we commonly speak of a cross, but we often don't understand what this process all involved. For Romans to die on a cross, it, it symbolized being rejected by the afterlife being rejected and suspended between heaven and and earth. And for the Jews, it symbolized being under the curse of God. And for everyone of the day, it was known to be the most horrific way to die. Nails would be driven through the wrists along one one of the nerves. And then the legs would be bent slightly sometimes overlapping sometimes with or sometimes with the feet overlapping and sometimes with the feet side by side and nails would be driven through the feet and in this way Jesus would have had to be constantly shifting his weight while he was suspended on this cross his body weight would have to shift from the nails in his wrists to the nails in his feet in order not to suffocate And this caused excruciating and and fiery pain because the nails slid against the nerves. And as his body tired, there would be cramps that make it nearly impossible to lift up his body and exhale the air within him. One medical doctor, a Christian medical doctor, wrote this, Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial suffocation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. And then another agony begins. A deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium, the area around his heart, slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. And it's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump the heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp, to gasp in small gulps of air. 
the body of Jesus is now in extremis, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through. His mission of atonement is all but completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. This was undoubtedly one of the cruelest ways someone could die. It was reserved for the worst of crimes like treason and rebellion. And this crucifixion, normally it lasted for at least a day or several days. Jesus died long before that. But this is the way that Jesus was condemned to die, to die by suffocation or a burst heart. But throughout history, thousands of people have been crucified on crosses. And under the Romans themselves, thousands were crucified in the very same way that Jesus was crucified. What's most significant isn't the painful death of Christ. It's not the the torture or the judgment of Rome. The description of Christ's death in physical terms makes us uneasy. It should only drive home the intensity of the wrath of God that Christ experienced in our place. We read in verse 33, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Jesus hangs there for three hours from nine in our time, nine in the morning until noon, and then from the sixth hour, which would be noon, until three in the afternoon, darkness descends upon the land. There's been different explanations given for what this darkness was. Some have suggested it was an eclipse of the moon passing over the sun, but it's Passover, and Passover always occurs at the full moon when there can't be an eclipse. And some have suggested that there were thick clouds or a sandstorm that blocked out the sun. Mark doesn't explain what this darkness was in human terms caused by, because he's pointing out that this was a darkness caused by God. A darkness that was already predicted to coincide with judgment back in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, darkness was a symbol of God's judgment. You can think of the judgment upon Egypt when in the ninth plague, darkness descended upon the land for three days, and that was a plague of darkness uh, upon the nation of Egypt. And it was a plague which preceded the, the Passover and the salvation of Israel. And then in the prophets, when they speak of the day of the Lord, it's often termed in in such a way as like a day of darkness, a day of, of darkness and dread. And it's in this darkness that God was present in judgment upon Christ. He was pouring the full weight of his wrath upon our Lord and Savior. This is the the cup of wrath that Jesus prayed about in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed that 
the that this cup of wrath would be spared from him. It was a wrath so great that as he thought about it, he sweated drops of blood. The eternal wrath of God that we deserve to bear, but instead Jesus Christ chose to endure it in our place. In our place and the place of every believer, Jesus bore a wrath that's so intense that when the darkness finally does lift, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because when Christ was on the cross, he experienced hell. There's no sense of the Father's love. There's no sense of comfort. There's only divine anger and punishment. And his cry shows the great horror of someone enduring the punishment for sin and all the evil acts that have been done. Christ's cry shows how intense his suffering was. And it also teaches us how to respond to our own suffering. Because as he absorbed all the bitter suffering and anguish of God's wrath against sin, his response was still one of faith. As he suffered physical pain, he cried out to God. And according to Jewish tradition, prayer has ten names or, or categories, and one of those is a cry. And those are cries that come when we see no indication whatsoever that God is on our side, when we feel that God is silent and that we've been rejected. No one can go through life on this earth without some time when they feel isolated from fellow humans or from God himself. And what we should do when we are overcome with grief and pain and anguish is to follow the example of Christ. The feet may tempt us to give up faith in God, but Jesus' cry on the cross reveals a faith that will not let go of God even in the midst of the most intense suffering imaginable. He cries a lament. And you too can lament and cry out to God in your distress. You can speak to God about what troubles you, maybe the apparent triumph of enemies or the feeling of being overwhelmed you can cry out for relief and you can ask why and as Christians you can conclude your prayer as Psalm 22 concludes you can conclude your prayer with trust with thanksgiving and confidence that because of Christ's cry on the cross, God will not truly and fully forsake you. That he knows what it is like to suffer. He knows what it is like to feel forsaken. Truly. And so in the crucifixion and death of Christ, God himself knows how to suffer as a human beyond what it seems like you can bear.
We have the saying from, that's used from time to time that war is hell. When you look at images of the, the intense suffering that's going on right now in the Ukraine, that, that sentiment can ring home. And sometimes when someone goes through a, a series of accidents and, and suffering, we can say that they've gone through hell. Well, the cross reveals that Christ has gone through hell. He endured the, the wrath of God, and because of that, his horrifying death and his faithful cry could bring such blessing and comfort to a world filled with suffering. Perhaps some of us shy away from ever crying out to God and asking him why we suffer. Some don't feel that they can lay bare their emotions, including their anger or disappointment, feeling that such honesty reflects a lack of faith or even blasphemy. But in truth, this timidity and withdrawnness, it reflects a sense of distance from God. Because how often don't we fear that if we lay bare our emotions in prayer, God won't truly reject us? That he might reject us when we complain in an hour of trial. But notice how small children, they, they don't hesitate to make their complaints or their sufferings known to their parents. It's almost only when you have been, when someone has been abused that they would withhold their true emotions from their parents or their pain or their suffering. But Christ shows us that we can cry out why. It's what he does at his lowest point. It's what he does as he dies in our place. And it's surely a faithful reaction to suffering because the cry of despair to God is the cry of a child to their heavenly father. A loving God who also in Jesus Christ was willing to suffer in our place. So that's the reaction of, of Christ at his lowest point in Christ's death around the cross. We also see the, the crowds and how they react at and, and their lowest point. So after his trial, Jesus was mocked by the Romans. They dressed him up as a king and were beating him. And then on the cross, the, the thieves, the scribes, and the passers-by, they also mocked him and hurled insults at him, saying things like, come down and we'll believe you. And he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And now in verse 35, we're told that those nearby said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. They know what he said. We're told that he cried out with a loud voice. But someone goes and offers some sour wine for Jesus to drink, and then they sit back and they watch. 
the reason that they suggest Elijah is, is partly because of a prophecy in Malachi where, uh, where Elijah is said to appear before the Messiah comes. And the Jews, they obviously knew about this teaching. And then there was also a, a Jewish tradition that if a righteous person was truly suffering unjustly, Elijah would, would come and act as a patron saint type figure and save that person from their suffering. And the reaction in, in suggesting Elijah might come boils down to, to saying, well, Jesus, you think you're righteous? You think you're the Messiah? Let's just see about it. Let's just see if Elijah will come and rescue you. And so they, they give him some sour wine, and this sour wine was used to quench thirst. It acted sort of like an ancient equivalent of Gatorade, and it was used regularly by soldiers. And in this way, they try to drag out the suffering of Christ. But of course, there was no Elijah coming to rescue Jesus. There was no escape from dying our death. This is the saddest part of this account. The saddest, the lowest point for the crowd. These people see the Messiah, they see their promised king, but they've utterly rejected him. They've completely misunderstood him. It's the climax of human blindness and Iniquity spilling over in, in brutal outreach against God's Son. It shows a world that has been flipped upside down. Jesus is a king who died as an outlaw. He's the Messiah who was rejected by his own people. The mighty Son of God who did not use his power for himself, but instead surrendered and died a, a seemingly powerless death. And the Jews and the Romans who executed Jesus, they misunderstood that they were actually carrying out God's will. And that Jesus submitted willingly as God's obedient son, and by not coming down from the cross, he died so that the very people who killed him could have salvation. And they also misunderstood that this death was not the end of Jesus. Instead, it meant the end of their own world, world order. They couldn't fathom how his death disclosed the character and power of God as he was going to get rid of the temple ceremonies. And that even with the reaction of the people as they mock Christ, we see God's grace abounding to them. We're told in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then as Jesus died, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. This curtain was separating the, the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. And the Holy of 
holies was a place that only one priest could enter and only once a year. It was a place which symbolically separated the people from God. An early Jewish historian, he wrote that this curtain was 80 feet high and perhaps 12 layers thick. And the fact that this curtain is torn from the top to the bottom, it shows that in the sacrifice of Christ, the other sacrifices have been fulfilled and the people have symbolically once more access to God. There's no more need for any of the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. There's no more need for the blood of bulls and and sheep to cover sin. With Christ's death, it is finished. And grace now abounds to sinners. Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet through the cross, God's anger and the darkness, it's not directed towards the crowd or to us. The veil of the temple is torn. The separation is cast aside and God says, Enter, enter by the blood of my Son. And so the cross, it reveals God's incredible love and grace. It shows that there is a way to escape the judgment of God. We truly see who God is when we see the Son of God crying out from the cross and then raised in glory, and when we hear the offer of forgiveness of sins ring out ever more loudly. And you can receive that forgiveness of sins if you make the same good confession that the centurion did, which is our third point, the high point of the centurion's confession. So this centurion soldier who, who makes this statement quoted by Mark, he's in charge of the execution squad. This is a man who would have been experienced with death and would have been experienced with crucifixion in particular. He was probably also present at the trial, and he probably oversaw the flogging and the the mockery that took place there. He probably assigned the soldiers to drive the nails into Jesus. He's a man who never saw Jesus' miracles, never heard his interpretation of what his death meant. Yet there was something about the death of Jesus that makes him cry out or, or say, Surely this man was the Son of God. And this is the high point, the climax of Mark's account. In his opening line, the, the first verse of the Gospel of Mark, Mark writes the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's the only time in this gospel that Mark says who he believes and knows Jesus to be. 
then at his at the baptism of Christ God and at his transfiguration as well God the father says this is my son but through the rest of his account there is a question lingering in the background of Mark Mark is asking his readers who is Jesus or to make it more pointed who do you believe Jesus is and as Jesus teaches and heals and casts out demons and even forgives sins Mark shows the different responses of the people some follow him others are confused others outright reject him and accuse him of blasphemy but the only creatures who really get it who know that he's the son of God and recognize this are the demons And then the centurion here at the crucifixion of Christ, a pagan man, he recognizes and confesses the truth. Seeing how Jesus dies shakes this man's world. All of a sudden, he recognized that that true power was revealed not in empire, but in the cross. True power is not coercive, exploitative, or manipulative. True power isn't found in conquering land or executing victims. It's found in the crucifixion of Christ. It's found in the death of the Son of God. The power that this man served, it, it crushed others and transformed life into death but the power of the cross it gives itself for others and transforms death into life and as jesus died on that cross as the son of god died in our place he daringly asked his father why and the centurion's question it give or comment his confession it gives the answer to that question his death will transform others and bring them to faith. The Spirit of Christ is a spirit of saving power. A spirit that makes dead and wicked men live. So they confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And so, brothers and sisters, is that your confession? Who do you believe that Jesus is? There's no more important question. And there's no more important answer than the fact that he is the son of God who willingly suffered and died in your place as a ransom for sin. He's the only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life. It is only by his death and suffering that we can say it is paid it is finished. Amen.